0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today we've got a conversation about the medieval king Edward I. Our guest is Dr Kathleen Neal, whose new book is The Letters of Edward I, Political Communication in the 13th Century. Our content director, David Musgrove, called Kathleen to find out more about what the letters of Edward I can tell us about the king as a man and the ways that he ruled.
1: So Kathleen, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me no problem at all. So we're talking about Edward I and specifically his letters. Edward I reigned in England from 1272 to 1307. He's famous as the Hammer of the Scots for his campaigns north of the border, also notable for campaigning in Wales and building a lot of castles there, but maybe not so well known as an epistolary figure. So uh, an interesting line you've got here. So we're talking about letters. Can we just uh, start it off by, by talking about letters generally was letter writing a, a regular occupation in the 13th century? Presumably it's only something that the uh, very upper echelons of society engaged in.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So letters are quite widespread across society, but as you rightly suspect, they are really the preserve of people who have some kind of rights to protect landed gentry or people. Uh, people with sort of official roles that they need to fulfil and therefore have reporting duties and things like that. So uh, kings are not alone, but uh, elite people generally are among those who are uh, practising epistolarity, if you like, at this time.
1: And the letters would uh, presumably mostly have been written in Latin?
2: Mostly, uh, although during the reign of Edward I we also find the local form of French coming into use in a more and more widespread way. So Edward I and his letters then. Um,
1: Have have we got a sense of how many letters uh, were produced by or on the orders of King Edward I uh, during his reign? Can you put any
2: sort of number on that? I know that some have survived and some haven't. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Pushing me to put a a single figure on it would be a challenge. Many, many thousands is probably the best answer. Um, Not all of them survive. Some of them only survive as drafts or what we call enrolments, which is when they are officially registered in in government records. Um, uh, But the ones that I've looked at uh, in my book are mainly ones that survive as individual documents rather than in a giant register and many of them are drafts, which turns out to be something quite exciting about them that maybe we'll talk about today.
1: Mm, absolutely. So the drafts, where where, do you, where 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 were they stored? Where did you find them? Were they archived in, in the Royal Chancery or something like that?
2: Yeah, they currently survive in the National Archives in Kew in the south of London, uh, but they would originally have been in c- the collections of either the Royal Chancery or the wardrobe, uh, which was basically the administrative department of the king's household, uh, and to a lesser extent also the Exchequer, which had its own secretariat as well. Um, In the book I talk also about letters that were produced and presumably at some point survived in the archives of Edward's uh, so-called deputed chanceries, like in Ireland or Gascony, which he also ruled over. Uh, But the ones that I'm looking at survive now, Uh, in London and mainly survived in the Middle Ages in English collections.
1: And that's why they're the the draft copies. Were were, were fair copies made of all the letters before they were sent out to whoever they were going to?
2: It seems so. Uh, Not necessarily of every letter, but certainly if any corrections were made to the draft, a fair copy would have been made uh, to to be confirmed and uh, approved by the king before it would have been sent out. Uh, Sometimes these survive. And um, they also, especially if they survive in comparison to a pre-existing draft that's been corrected, they can show us very interesting things about the development of the expression of a certain idea.
1: So who was he writing to uh, and why? Can you just give us a, a, a flavour of that? I know that's a very big question and, and you know, is, is very well dealt with in your book, but but, but sort of summarise it for us as, as best you can.
2: Yeah, so... He writes mainly to people that he needs to interact with for political or diplomatic reasons and for reasons of government and administration. So the people that he's writing to fall into categories like uh, justices who are charged with overseeing royal courts, um, representatives who are undertaking diplomatic missions for him on the continent, who are undergoing negotiations on his behalf in Wales or ruling Ireland on his behalf. Um, And that group of people partially but not completely overlaps with a separate category of sort of elite political correspondents like earls, um, countesses, uh, the Queen Mother, uh, the Queen herself, um, various members of his extended kin across Europe because, of course, the political and, and familial are deeply entwined at this time. Um, and he writes to fellow magnates, so the kings of lots of different realms, the Pope, uh, even one of the Khans, um, as the Mongols make their presence felt uh, in Europe. So his, his letter writing is spread across interests that need to be maintained, both within his realms and beyond them, um, and at the level level of sort of born political elites and if you like, functional political elites in the form of sheriffs and such like.
1: Right. Brilliant. So that's that's a, a, a top-line summation of it. Just, and we've talked about uh, his letters. Um, perhaps we should discuss the process a little bit. How far is is the king actually involved in this process,
2: as far as we can tell? That's a great question and uh, one that I've had lots of arguments with people about. So obviously if, if so many thousands of letters are being produced in his name in, in a given year... It's very unlikely that he is personally involved in every single one. Um, He has clerks who do that for him. Um, Many of them are not in his company all of the time because, as I mentioned, there are chanceries operating on his behalf in distant lands. He can only be in one place at a time. Uh, So he has to have trusted people that can um, express his voice in the way that he would want. Having said that, um, I've argued... Uh, that there is evidence to see him personally involving himself in certain types of correspondence, especially when the stakes are high. So that might be because the person that he's writing to is particularly eminent um, or perhaps and or um, because the topic itself is so sensitive, so important, so, um, so politically charged. Um, One example of that, for instance, is when uh, letters are passing between him and ap Griffith, the Prince of Wales, um, in the lead up to what will eventually become the English conquest of Wales in the 1280s. And the the degree of sort of minute um, editing of individual words in a sequence of drafts of these letters strongly implies that very executive level attention is being given to this sort of correspondence. Um, And if you put that sort of observation together with the fact that in some especially draft correspondence you get quite profane language coming through, sometimes in the fine copies as well, um, we can conclude that it's not the clerks who are coming up with these rude terms. It, It must be representative of the king himself dictating uh, what is to be written down, and and then perhaps, or perhaps not ironed out afterwards.
1: And uh, listeners, close your ears because I'm going to swear now. Um, I'm, I was, there's a little example I, I spotted one of the footnotes in the book uh, where he's writing to the Earl of Dunbar, I think, and you you note that he says uh, in French, "Tant qu'on chien uh, which
2: translates uh, crudely as wild the dog shits." <laughs> Yeah, that's a a headline one. (laughs) But it's not isolated in his um, what I've called uh, emphatic profanity at times. Um, So just in terms of the actual process, uh, so there's no letters that we can say
1: he actually put pen to, not paper. I mean, these are written on vellum, I assume. Actually, what are they written on?
2: They're mainly written on parchment. There are some letters in the National Archives collections that are written on paper, but none that I can think of for Edward himself, um, yes, you're right. He's not the one putting pen to surface. Um, partly because that is beneath his dignity. That is a, a task that one designates to the prof- the professionals who are charged with that job. Uh, much like my dad has never typed a letter. In his long medical career, he always had a secretary to do that for him Um, and that's part of the role of of being the king. You have your secretaries uh, to do that for you. Um, But having said that, I think he was deeply aware of the kind of norms of form and of rhetoric and language that governed the work of those servants and closely oversaw uh, what they were doing, In, in some cases reading and in other cases perhaps listening back to the final copy to make sure that he was happy, uh, especially when the letter was a sensitive one.
1: So there's, there's no doubt at all that he was literate. He could read what, what people had read and, and, uh, and study. It wasn't, the, the words weren't being read to him by,
2: by people. I strongly argue so, even though the, the evidence is perhaps more circumstantial than direct. Um, But elites at this period were reading prayer books, um, reading chronicles, histories of people like King Arthur and Alexander the Great, um, frequently corresponding. Um, And uh, that's true also of women, interestingly. There's a 13th century text written by Bishop Test of Lincoln which instructs Countess Lacey to... uh, to oversee what her record-keeping officials are doing in her name and to check its accuracy. So it's clear that they must be expecting people at this level of society to have literate skills on the reading side of it, even if they didn't necessarily have the writing side of the equation as well.
1: So I'm imagining then the letters that he's personally involved with there's there's a room with with lots of people in and clerks and and discussing these letters and maybe it's being read to him or he's reading it and he's making his suggestions and amends. Um I don't know if that's a, a, an accurate characterization of how it might have happened or not.
2: Um, yeah, there I, there's no direct discussion of that that I know of in in terms of the the practicalities of how many people are in the room and is it one room or is it a movable feast with, with clerks kind of following the king around as he, as he walks down the corridors of power? Um, it's clear in some cases that letter production was almost a type of theatre and in that case there were doubtless a number of people gathered round, some of whom were directly involved in the physical production of the letter as scribes, but others who might have been involved as advisors on the terminology, perhaps in legal terms or political terms or even purely aesthetic ones, and others who might have been present as audience in terms of witnessing the fact that the king was going to send this particular letter and that this was what it was going to say. Um, And one of the arguments that I make in the book is that Edward was quite canny about manipulating that in order to generate a kind of sense of belonging and camaraderie among po- politically important groups of people so that they would feel included in his ideological expression uh, through whichever letter was uh, being produced at the time.
1: We'll come back to that performance thing because I think there's also, you, you write about the performance of receiving the letter as uh, as well, potentially. And that just, um, people are always interested in the minutiae. So the letter gets written, and then the, the the royal seal is is uh, attached to it. Uh, and then, how does it actually get to the person at the other end? Do we know? Is there there wasn't a postal service? Obviously, um, so would there would they have been sent by specific messengers, or would there were there different levels
2: of of postal service depending on uh, on the uh, importance of the um, recipient and the letter going. Mm, yeah, that's a great question and um, unfortunately not one that I had time to explore very much in this book, but but watch this space. Um, so they, we do have luckily for quite a number of years throughout Edward's reign uh, wardrobe account books which specify payments to messengers and that reveals to us a coterie of people who are essentially employed to be messengers and there are two classes of these. There's um, what are known as the kokkini, uh, possibly because they started out as kind of cooks' boys who just abandoned their kitchen duties for the day to to drop off a letter somewhere. And these uh, these people were sort of becoming increasingly professionalised as a messenger group. And they recur; their names recur over and over again in the in the messenger accounts. They typically went on foot to people, not always just to the most immediate um, recipients, sometimes to quite distant ones, but, but when the m- matter was not particularly urgent and not usually when the recipient was very, of very high status. Um, if either of those things was true, then they would uh, the king would send an nuncius, um, which is related to our word announcement or announcer, and uh, these people would often be mounted, and of a, a higher status, wearing the king's livery. Um, and they would be sometimes uh, the, the accounts reveal they would sometimes be charged with carrying multiple letters. So a batch of letters, not necessarily all on the same topic, might be produced on a single day. And then a particular man in the usually man in the king's service would be sent on a circuit. Um, to drop them all off um, around a certain route. Sometimes on quite distant ones, you know, all the way from Westminster to Dublin and back via various other stops, uh, and they would be reimbursed for their expenses along the way and so forth, paid a bit extra if they had to travel by night or if they had to hire extra horses and things like that. Um, But they also made ad hoc use of whoever was available, especially if the uh, the message was urgent. Or, or if it was a reply to a letter. So say the king received a letter from um, the Bishop of Chester, then the bishop's messenger would bring the letter and would often be paid to go back with the king's reply rather than sending yet another person who would then be stuck away from their place of business, if you like. Um, they also seem to have uh, sort of drafted in, members of the wardrobe or other members of the king's um, officialdom who happened to be present without a, a particular job to do if they needed a letters to go in a hurry for any particular reason. So a friar who happened to be present, for example, might be charged with that job. Um, so yeah, we do actually have quite rich records for how they made their way from A to B. Um, and the answer is partly through professional Messengers and partly through whoever was there at the time.
1: And uh, suddenly, you know, you, it, when you get an email these days, you have got that annoying function where you can request a return receipt and, and that sort of thing. How, how obviously that doesn't work in uh, in the 30s. How did people? Know, how did the king know that letter had got there? Um, and uh, and are there examples or or, or um, things that you found of letters not arriving that should have done and people being confused about?
2: Mm. Well, it, because the king's many of the king's messages are sent with his own messengers, then they can return and report. And um, it's clear that sometimes messengers were suspected of having a, a sideline in espionage for that reason. And often when a messenger from a foreign country arrived, the king would appoint one of his own messengers to travel with them so that their activities could be observed for that reason. Um, but there was great anxiety about letters not arriving and when they were particularly important they were occasionally sent in duplicate or triplicate by different mean, by different routes with different carriers so that they could be assured of, of receipt. Um, it's hard to tell when they didn't arrive if nobody knew about it though because it's a real absence of evidence problem. Um, it's certainly true that medieval letter writers generally, uh, Edward included, quite often wrote rather cranky letters to their correspondents if they felt that they hadn't received a reply in due time. Um, Although I think probably they wrote those kinds of letters when they knew that the letter had been received to which they were expecting a reply. Otherwise, I doubt that that tone of um, displeasure would have been quite the thing to adopt.
1: There's a there's just a little example I spotted in uh, in the book where you say um, it's uh, Edward writing to Aimer uh, de Valence in Scotland and he says we marvel greatly that we have not yet had any news concerning whether or not the Bishop of Murray has taken as we commanded some time ago by our letters. So I suppose that's an example of that, right?
2: Yeah, um, that's. I think that's also an example of. Uh, a case where the king may have received many letters from Ama in the intervening time, but he hasn't had the news that he wanted, uh, probably partly because they hadn't actually managed to capture that bishop yet. Um, and he's, he's angry there, I think, not just at the lack of correspondence on the matter, but at the lack of evidence that the command has been successfully carried out.
1: I wandered off on a tangent there, actually. I was going to ask you about the performance of receiving the letter. So so the letter gets to you eventually via these messengers or, or whatever. Uh, it's got the royal seal on, so I guess that's how you know it's not a, a fake. Um, you can assume that it is definitely from the king. Um, but then what, I mean, it can't be an everyday occurrence that you would get a letter from King Edward I. So what happens then when the letter's received? How does it
2: become potentially a sort of a performative experience? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question, a rather complex one in some respects. Um, So in some cases it's clear that the king would make every attempt to, if you like, manipulate the theatre of reception to his own advantage. So uh, he would send a messenger in his own livery, Um, they would be announced at the receiving court, for example, Um, and if they could manage it they might try to be the person who read the letter out, or at the very least, who made an announcement about what it would contain. Um, if, if not, though, and recipients, I think, had uh, strong interests in trying to be the ones controlling the theatre of reception, they would perhaps appoint one of their own people to read the letter aloud. Um Martin Camargo, a scholar from the States who works extensively on the theory of, of letter writing at this time, has argued that it's, it seems that letter writing entailed instruction in how to perform them, how to read them aloud. And it's certainly true that uh, Edward's letters and those of his contemporaries seem to have contained, if you like, stage directions in the form of certain types of punctuation gave an instance of how how to breathe, when to breathe, uh, when the dramatic pause should be made and so forth. And that seems to have been another way of attempting to make sure that one had some control over how the letter is read out, even if it's not your person doing it. Um, and it, it's clear that these punctuations, for example, these punctuation marks, marks are sometimes rhetorical rather than grammatical signals because they don't actually make grammatical sense. Um, so that's, that's one case in which we can say definitely uh, reception is a, is a theatre. People are intended to hear this. Um, there's also the way that the king could manipulate which seal is used. Uh, for example, he had at least two, the great and privy seals, uh, which issued business out of Westminster or wherever the king happened to be. And they were vastly different in size. The great seal was many inches across, whereas the privy seal was only a couple of centimetres across. And uh, there's one example I can think of where quite unusually the king chooses to use the great seal for what is otherwise a very banal letter of family greetings to uh, his aunt, the the Dowager Queen of France, Marguerite of Provence. And it seems likely, uh, I've argued in an article that's just about to come out in Women's History Review, seems likely that he did this partly to ensure that the letter would be received publicly and opened and read aloud publicly as a way of signalling the resumption of um, friendly relations between the English and French royal houses after a um, certain period of crisis. Uh, whereas normally he would have chosen the privy seal for such a, co- a piece of correspondence that would have been perhaps even secretly conveyed because it was so small it could be folded up very ti- into a very tiny packet, passed over in an unassuming way. Um, so, yeah, there are various ways that he could try to control the circumstances of reception, but it was never entirely in his hands.
1: It's it's a fascinating concept to think of people writing for for, a, for an oral audience for it to be read out. That that is that is makes it makes it a bit interesting. But going back to the sort of the tone and content of the letters, you say in the book that uh, letter writing was a formal, formulaic process, and that medieval letters were highly structured, uh, formal, and formulaic documents. What what do you mean by that? Um, wh- how did they follow a structure?
2: So they follow structure in two key ways. The most commonly discussed one in uh, scholarship of medieval letter writing is that that uh, the one typically known as the Ars Dictaminis or the Art of Dictamen, um, and that had evolved on the continent as a sort of template that one should adopt, uh, and that described the customary form of letters, assigning to each part of the letter a certain function as well. So it would have a salutation, um, which was governed by certain rules of expression. It would have uh, what's known often as a captatio benevolentiae or a capturing of goodwill section that would sort of try and find a way of articulating some common ground on which sender and recipient could agree and then uh, the rest of the letter could proceed then it would include what's known as a narratio or uh, an itemisation of the circumstances leading up to the letter, a petitio, which is the key command or request of the letter, and um, a conclusio, wrapping up, reiterating the key uh, ideology or, or premises of agreement, and perhaps providing some other kind of authenticating statement like the place and date that the letter was issued. So that Five-part structure, if you like, governed almost all medieval letter writing. Then within England, there was also a reference to what are known as writs, which were like a form of letter, but which were themselves highly structured and sort of predetermined in the kinds of legal phraseology that they could adopt and so forth and that were governed principally by an attention to brevity. In fact, they were known in Latin as brevia. Um, So together this sort of continental tradition of the five-part structure and the English attention to very brief, very legalistic uh, and formulaic letter writing under the, the guise of the writ came together to sort of define just how formulaic and uh, formally driven english royal letter writing was
1: so does that mean there were lots of opportunities for either pitfalls of getting the uh, getting the nomenclature wrong or putting in sly digs by not doing it quite in the right way and uh, and and suggesting some sort of you know undermining a uh, message there
2: yes yes that's right so there were many ways in which um and unassuming letter writer could could put a foot right foot wrong Um, but of course Edward surrounded himself with the most accomplished men of letters literally Uh, and so when there are things like the profanities that we discussed before that seem to go beyond these set an acceptable formulae so yeah when when there are digressions from these standard forms in Edward's letters. It's almost certainly a deliberate act of transgressing these norms in order to make a particular effect, either to show his displeasure or perhaps even on occasion to signal the particular intimacy that he had with a certain person. Uh, Geoffrey de Janville, for example, who was um, a close friend of Edward's throughout many uh, trials and tribulations, and, and served at one time as his justice here in Ireland. Uh, he exchanges a number of letters with the king, which have sort of not not obscenities, but sort of veiled, profane jokes that it seems the two men are sharing together in a way that bypasses the form uh, the formality of standard royal epistolarity. Um. Equally, when he wrote on one occasion to the King of Scotland, John Balliol, in a moment when he was particularly displeased with him for uh, various reasons, (laughs) um, he deliberately calls him you instead of your nobility. And we can see this in the draft, that your nobility is crossed out and replaced with you, um, showing just how a deliberate decision this was to demote him from... Um, the normal courtesies that would have been shown to his rank to to something much, much more abrupt and dismissive. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There are a number of letters from Edward I to the future Edward II um, and they suggest suggest that he might have been a rather um, forbidding father figure
1: In terms of the, the content of the letters, what you actually see in it, so obviously you've analysed lots of these letters and you had a look at it and tried to uh, go beneath the formal structure you've outlined to, to see what he's actually saying. What does what do they tell us about the way um, King Edward I governed?
2: Yeah, so you do have to look quite closely because of how formulaic they are, as I've just been describing. Um, but what I've found is that when you do look closely and um with attention to the fact that, given they're so formulaic, the tiniest change to the standard expectation must be noticeable and conveying some kind of meaning, then it's easy to see subtle but important shifts in the key ideologies that he's expressing to these very elite correspondents over time. For example, um, earlier in his reign... um, Most of his letters concern the king's duty to do justice with equity for all, um, his commitment to take counsel from his nobility, his recognition of his uh, need to be seen and to do due process for all um, and so forth. So uh, an overt commitment through rhetoric uh, to the kinds of Re- requirements of good kingship that he wants to be seen to be exercising and to be noted for. And we see this especially in correspondence that uh, he directs to his nobility but also to people who are acting for him in senior official roles like the Chancellor, for example, and even when he's discussing his own internal politics with external people like the Pope. So he uses... Words that signal this commitment to good kingship as it was understood at the time um, in those letters. Then later in his reign, especially from the 1290s, when things, for various reasons, start to go a bit pear shaped, uh, you can see him gradually reducing, and in some cases quite suddenly reducing, this commitment to things like counsel, taking counsel from the nobility being in partnership with them and a rise in words that mean pleasure and displeasure, command, um, demands, obedience, this kind of thing. So with very careful attention to individual words and where crucially where they are popping up in that template of is, is it to do with the terminology that's, um, for example, trying to establish common ground with the recipient. If we attend to where that vocabulary is popping up as well as the vocabulary itself, we get this barometer of the changes in his uh, governance over time. And the long and the short of it is it gets much more authoritarian, um, much less committed to partnership and counsel with the nobility, uh, particularly towards the last 10 years or so of the reign when he's under massive financial and military pressure and consequently under a certain degree of political pressure too.
1: (laughs) Kind of answered the the next question I was going to ask, which was, did the king ask or simply command? And it sounds like perhaps, well, I suppose it depended on who he was talking to, but it sounds like perhaps his attitude changed as his, his reign progressed in that uh, regard. Anyway,
2: yeah, that's true. It it did it it depended formally on who the person is and their relationship to the king. So there were legal theorists who'd written about this, you know, which verb of of command slash request one should use or could use, depending on the jurisdictional relationship between the sender and recipient. So if the king's relationship to the recipient was one of command, like a sheriff, for example, um, someone whose uh, relationship to him was governed by office and therefore by duty, then he would command them in a certain very direct and explicit way. If he was giving a command to someone of nobility whose relationship to him was governed primarily by homage rather than oaths of office and um, these explicit sort of official relationships, then he would write, he would send even commands in typically a much more honourable set of language. And then if he was writing to someone who was completely outside his jurisdiction, like, for the sake of argument, the Countess of Flanders, or if he was writing to his own people but on matters where their homage did not oblige them, then he would use request. Um, so that those kinds of grades, if you like, of command were already hard-baked into the formulae that I was talking about before. Um, but as the reign progressed, there's suggestion in the evidence that that he was he and his clerks of course are trying increasingly to force the obligation side of the equation um, sometimes they <laughs> very ill-advisedly adopted the request side and then had to backtrack because they didn't get the compliance that they'd been hoping to do by showing uh, increased honor to the recipient um, and after this sort of period of Um, if you like, ill-advised experimentation, the king seems to have determined to become much more commanding except in diplomatic contexts that required a greater degree of, uh, well, diplomacy. (laughs) Um, And so in the last ten years or so, most of his letters are produced by uh, by letters under the Privy Seal, which means he's much more directly involved, they're much less formal, and he's got much more scope for just giving commands and and not worrying with all of this kind of persuasive apparatus of rhetoric that had been necessary earlier on.
1: And w- and what about his personal relationships? How far can we track that through the letters? You, you write a little bit about how you can see how he got on or didn't with his son um, through his letters, for instance. So tell us a bit about that.
2: Yes, so his he... There are a number of letters from Edward I to the future Edward II, um, and they suggest they suggest that he might have been a rather um, forbidding father figure. Um, when he puts uh, the younger Edward in charge, for example, while he's uh, while the older Edward is on the continent trying to raise troops against France, um, he. He gives his son almost no leeway uh, for initiative, for example, in running the government in his absence. Of course, this could have been to do with the fact that he was only 12 or 13 years old at the time. (laughs) Um, uh, But but he's very commanding and, um, yeah, leaving no room for doubt or uh, any initiative on the part of the young Edward. Having said that, there are fleeting moments where, He adds quite outside his normal standard practice one-off mentions of of paternal love, for example, or um, directions to the prince about why he might need to express letters in the king's name in a certain way or why he might need to undertake certain types of action on his behalf, for instance, in negotiating with the men of Gascony that suggests that he, that he is committed to k- trying to educate his son into how to be a king, and he obviously has that level of commitment and affection, um, but at the same time he's ruthlessly unwilling to give up any of, of the control in the equation. Um, I think he must have been quite a difficult father to deal with. But his his affection comes through uh, for his family and in other ways as well. Um, he... He writes quite often to his aunt that I mentioned before, Marguerite of Provence, and their correspondence is respectful but affectionate. Um, His mother writes quite frequently to him um, in almost effusively affectionate ways, reminding him of the obligations of kinship and why he should love his cousin and do honour to anyone who ever helped his father, especially during the Baron's Wars and so forth. Um, so there's, it's clear that there's affection and and family relationships, if you like, sitting just beneath the surface, but sometimes they can be false friends. Um, we know, for example, that the word friendship itself tended to appear in medieval correspondence mainly as a way of trying to generate it rather than a reflection of what was already there. So it could have been equally a rhetorical strategy as well as a reflection of um, relationship itself.
1: So, okay, so uh, we can see by the sounds of things some hints of his character coming through at, uh, in some of these letters. We, you talked about the profanities earlier and the, and the relationship with his son and and, uh, and his other family members there. Any other, any other little tidbits of, of, of the king's character that you've spotted
2: that, uh, that you want to mention to us? I think he had an incredible attention to detail. The, the fact that he is involved, as I argue, in this really minute adjustment of language in all sorts of circumstances, changing the order of words, changing the vocabulary uh, and so forth, suggests to me that he's the kind of person who um, was essentially a, a born micromanager. There were very few people, I think, that he trusted implicitly um, without some form of oversight. One of them, I suspect, was his first chancellor, Robert Burnell, Uh, and until he died uh, in 1290 or 91, the precise date inevitably escapes me at the opportune moment. Um, Before that, there is... Uh, the evidence for Edward's direct involvement in letter writing is is really much more restricted to these moments of big ticket political or diplomatic uh, necessity. After Burnell dies, I think there are fewer and fewer people that Edward is willing to trust as fully as that, um, and so that again is probably part of why he becomes more and more involved in this executive oversight way, more and more of a micromanager uh, of all of his political uh, letter-writing thereafter. Um, What, um,
1: last question, Um, having studied uh, this and and looked at it and, and read the letters and reviewed them, if you were able to write a letter to King Edward I, what might you want to ask him and how might he reply?
2: The thing that I would really like to know is how much he invested his own persona in letters and how much he saw it as a performance of a character that he was adopting. Uh, That's something that's almost impossible to, to disentangle, the rhetorical performance from the person themselves. Although, to be fair, I'm not sure if it's a question that he could necessarily ask because of the way that it takes such a degree of, of insight into oneself to, to separate the personae that we adopt from the essential us. I hope that he would answer that, that there's a mixture of both, um, as I suspect and as I argue in the book, that, that you can at times see Edward appearing through the persona that he constructs. But I suspect that he would also say that the persona that he constructed was also the one that he intended to be true, that he's trying to produce reality through letter writing. Um, So when he talks about his commitment to justice, I think there are only a limited number of circumstances in which we can suspect him of um, being loose with truth or sort of read it cynically, I think. In the moment, he means it, um, and therefore, I hope that he would say that what I've concluded—that that his his approach to governance and his embodiment of kingship changes over time—was indeed the case, and not merely a shift of of rhetorical emphasis.
1: we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there any any topics that um, that we we should have uh, we should have chatted about? Any questions I should have
2: asked to uh, before we before we wrap up? I think one one thing that I probably should have mentioned when you were asking me about uh, letters being read aloud and how they're received was just to make it clear to listeners that medieval letters are not intended to be received just by the person who is named as the recipient, that it's almost always the case that at least their most closest advisors or immediate family members, members of their retinue, their servants... Would have been present, and that the letter would have been read aloud in their presence rather than necessarily silently. Um, there are, in fact, a couple of examples in literature. Uh, for example, the works of Matthew Paris, uh, monk in the mid thirteenth century in St Albans, where he's talking about papal letters being re- letters being received. I'm sorry by the Pope, and that the Pope would both read them silently to himself and also have one of his nearest uh, cardinals read them out to him and that people are present when this happens. So um, when I say that I think there's a theatre of reception, I I don't just mean a big performance of handing over the letter to the person who is the named recipient. I genuinely mean there is an audience present and, and a performance of the letter, not just of the handing over of the letter.
1: OK, well, Kathleen, thank you very much for your time there. Um, we've we've learned a lot about Edward I and medieval letter writing. Um, and the book uh, where you can learn a lot more is The Letters of Edward I, Political Communication in the 13th Century, published by Bordell Press and written by Dr Kathleen Neal. So thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank
2: you. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Dr Kathleen Neal. You can find plenty more on Medieval Monarchs at our website, which is historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Juliet Nicholson will be speaking about how London froze over in the 1960s.